Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. History is best learned when we focus on stories about people over memorizing important dates. A class at University of St. Joseph spent a semester researching the tragic story of a 19th century Hartford woman to understand the intersection of gender, trauma, and criminal justice. Today, where we live, we learn about what happened to Mother Ada Brown, who was murdered in 1884. And we learn how research by USJ students impacted a New England woman's journey to learn more about her family. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Jennifer Cody. She's Associate Professor of History at University of St. Joseph. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And one of your former students is with us as well, Lily Stilson, a recent graduate who majored in history. Lily, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, thank you so much for having us. So I'll start with you, Jennifer. We love doing shows about history on our show. And when we talk about history, when we think about looking at the people in our past and learning about their lives, talk about how you do that in your class. So... I used to teach in a pretty traditional manner, which would be, you know, my students would do a lot of reading and then we'd discuss the reading and it was, it was fine, right? They, they learned, they got something out of it, but it felt kind of like what you were describing in the, the little entry to the episode here, um, where they would retain, they would give me what I wanted to know and then they kind of forget. And so one day I decided that I would start teaching around problems. Um, and one of the things that I found is that if I find an individual um, for students to kind of hang their hats around, so to speak, um, they become a lot more engaged. It becomes personal. It becomes tangible in a way that reading history in a, in a book, in a monograph or a textbook just isn't. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I, I went about it. I wanted to find some kind of story that students could get into really dig into the details but something that they would feel feel a connection um, to the past individually and how did you find the story of ada brown i mean this is a, a horrific story what happened to this woman in 1884. so the honest answer to that question is that i actually sat down with a database of the hartford current mm -hmm. and i put murder and woman into the search box and i narrowed it down to the late 19th century <laughs> <laughs> So when you in, when you uncovered these articles that the current wrote about Ada Brown, what what were you thinking? What what drew you into this story? So my initial feeling was like, oh, this is going to be a hit. This is going to work. Um, it was part of the pedagogy that I use in the class. It's it's called problem based learning, and traditionally people use this in classes that have a much more tangible problem, like a nursing class, right, or a psychology class. Um, 
And there isn't really a model for how you do this in the humanities or in a class like a history class. And so when I was reading those articles, I thought, you know what, I think we can arrange a whole course around what happened to this poor woman. And what we'll do is we're not going to solve the case because the case was obvious um, and and the salacious details that are inside some of the current articles um, were really good fodder instead for thinking about how we contextualize history. So oftentimes what I'm trying to get my students to do is to realize that nothing's happening in a vacuum, that what's really going on is in order to understand it are layers of historical context. And so those are things like gender and class um, and race. And most of the stuff we could get just from those current articles and to begin to sort of pick them apart. And I also just knew that students were going to just be sucked in because, you know, most of my students, they like these kinds of stories because they're devastating. There's something about this that's similar to the, the, the wave of like true crime shows that people get really into, right? There's something about this stuff that sucks us in. Lily, I mentioned that you're a former student of Jennifer's. So when you're sitting in this class and you're being told that you're going to research and learn about this uh, particular time in history based on the story of Ada Brown, what was your reaction? So my first reaction was just how interesting this course was going to be. Um, I've had, I've taken courses where it is that just learn the material and tell it back to the professor. So this style of teaching really grabbed my attention um, and it made me really interested in Ada's story. So Jennifer, tell us about Ada's story briefly. Tell us, walk us through what happened to her. So Ada Brown was living in a, a rough area of Hartford in the 1880s. And this is an area of Hartford that's largely disappeared now. Um, it's It's been turned into other things. Um, and she's living in a tenement um, with her daughter, um, who's referred to either as Alina or Lena. And she was a widow. Um, her husband had died a few years earlier of tuberculosis. And we know that she's in that apartment with her friend. Um, and I'm using that term loosely, uh, George Gregory. Uh, he was reputed to be her lover at one point uh, or another. And with another woman who had come by to see if she could spend the night. And this is very late at night. Uh, her um, current boyfriend comes home. Um, his name's Martin Van Buren Harrison. And uh, he asks her to come inside. They were sitting on the stoop to come inside so they could talk. And they begin to have an argument about money. He lent her money earlier in the day and now he wants it back. And so depending on which article you read, um, there are different versions of this argument's details. But they kind of go back and forth and eventually he asks her to come in the pantry with him. And so she does. And they continue to argue and she continues to insist he's not getting the money at which point he whips out a knife and uh, essentially stabs it in her throat and pulls it towards her ear. Mm -hmm. um, and she comes stumbling out and she collapses in the hallway. Uh, the neighbor calls for the police. Um, they have like a, a tin horn that they would use to summon the police. And the police come and they summon a doctor and the medical examiner. And um, essentially she just lays there dying while they all arrive. Um, in the meantime, uh, George Gregory appears to snap um, and he grabs uh, the knife and stabs Martin Harrison with it. And so he also stabs him in the neck. So now Harrison's lying on the bed with a, a cut to his uh, 
jugular, I guess, according to one of the articles, though, when the medical examiner, the doctor arrives, he basically takes one look at Ada Brown, who is still breathing and keeps going and stitches Martin Harrison up. Um, Ada Brown stops breathing uh, within an hour or so. Um, and the story goes that Gregory had taken, he'd grabbed Elena and brought her to a neighbor, um, but there's no way that she didn't see some of this. It's also possible that she had to walk over her mother's body as it lay dying to get to the neighbor. We don't know, you know how many staircases we're talking about, things like that. Um, and from there, it becomes a, a, a dramatic case, a case that the current even says it, it hopes is going to be a celebrated murder case. So they're clearly looking to get something out of this. Um, and the first thing they need to determine is who killed Ada Brown, um, whether it was George Gregory or Martin Harrison, because Harrison's insisting um, that Gregory stabbed both of them. Uh, and then eventually it becomes clear that it's Martin Harrison. Um, and so the trial ensues in which Harrison is ultimately tried for manslaughter. Uh, and he goes to jail for seven years and uh, no charges were pressed against Gregory for assault. Mm. But, you know, Ada Brown dies in the process and, and nobody, nobody seems to care. And her daughter is sent to an orphanage. That's right. She's eventually adopted um, inside a few months, but she does spend some time there. This is a, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, Lily, mm -hmm. uh, as part of uh, the research you were doing in the class, obviously there's a looking into Ada's story, but what did you learn about the two men that were involved here? So my group uh, mainly focused on gender. So it was interesting to look at how society perceived these two men at the time, because you know you would assume they would be looked down upon for killing this woman. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of the hatred was directed towards Ada for her relationships with these men. It wasn't um, these men killed Ada. These men were associated with other women. And so they're bad men. It was Ada's associated with these men who do bad things. So Ada's a fallen woman. Ada's looked down upon. And even in some of those press accounts that uh, the class uncovered, uh, Lily, that was how it was described, that this woman who was murdered, comma, a fallen woman. So talk more about uh, what we learned about, what you learned about Ada. Why did she have this, uh, this description of her? So we're not exactly sure when this description would have really come into play when describing Ada. Um, we know that her daughter, Elena, was born a couple years before she actually married her first husband. So at that point, Ada could have been considered a fallen woman. She was having sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, but then later in her life, she's associating herself with these two men, Gregory and Harrison, outside of marriage again. Um, and it's assumed that she also had sexual relationships with them. So society at the time, you weren't women weren't expected to have these sexual relationships outside of marriage. They were supposed to have a husband and um, stay within that relationship. So for this to become public knowledge during her the coverage of her murder, the term fallen woman is thrown a lot around a, a lot um, and described data. 
Yeah. You're hearing Lily Stilson, who's a recent graduate at University of St. Joseph. She was part of a history course, uh, along with Jennifer Cody, who's the Associate Professor of History at University of St. Joseph. We're learning about um, how this uh, history course pegged um, the class to the story of Ada Brown and what the class learned about Hartford and the norms back in the 19th century. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jennifer Cody, did you want to add to, to Lily's description of why Ada was described in this manner? Oh, I just want to note that in the very first piece of coverage of the murder, the subheading, the, mur the head headline rather, is Murder in Sheldon Street. And the subheadline is something like Ada Brown, a depraved woman. And it's mm -hmm. just right from the get-go. And these uh, these press accounts are really interesting to read through, uh, Jennifer, this idea of how journalism was back then, this very sensational or yellow journalism. Yep, exactly. Some students had that as their topic, and so they had to dig into what that looks like. Um, the clearest parallel to our world would be sort of the way that cable news kind of works now, right? It's it's it, looking for clicks, it's all the time, um, or how internet news might work. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's an entirely new concept for students. So you've given us an outline of Ada and the men uh, that she was involved with and were there the night of her murder. We're going to talk more about them in just a little bit. But I wanted you to, to tell us more about Hartford in 1884. What was going on in the city at that time? Lily, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I can start with what I know. Okay. So... From looking into everything surrounding Ida's story, we learned at the time that Hartford was growing at this point. It was becoming what it is we know today. We were seeing the growth of the insurance industries, lots of other industries, um, and it became a landing point for um, immigrants to um, find jobs and settle themselves within Connecticut. Yeah, and one of the things that we begin to notice in this period is, is a lot of stratification. So you see the building of, of very wealthy neighborhoods. If you think about you know, Prospect Avenue, if you think about um, Asylum Hill in the 19th century, but it also has its, its flip side, which is extraordinarily impoverished neighborhoods. Um, um, Clay Arsenal was an impoverished neighborhood at the time, um, but so was sort of the, I'm trying to think of how they did, the language they used to describe it, but it's, it's a long, the river, as you can see in the images on the website, it's a river that no longer visibly exists. So the Park River ran through these neighborhoods um, and it's it's not a very pretty place to be. And this is pretty common in a lot of 19th century cities that you see this kind of wealth stratification and this cultivation of deliberate distance between the poor people who live in the poorer neighborhoods and work in the industries um, usually the factory workers and the like, and the people who own those industries who are on the other side of town, usually with a lot more space um, and a lot more luxury. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the tenement housing earlier, Jennifer, uh, near the Park River, which, which was also caused, called the Hog River. So talk more about uh, why it was described this way. So my understanding of that, and this is mostly through a conversation that I was having with Eileen yesterday, um, who's going to be on with us in a bit, um, is that it was so disgusting, essentially, uh, that they they referred to it as the Hog River. It was just, you know, what you and I might think of as polluted and, and um, I don't know, dangerous. Uh, it was pretty much why they called it the Hog River. And, you know, one of the things we have to remember, right, is that they didn't have, folks in that era didn't have sanitation the way that you and I have sanitation. And some cities had rudiments of it, but oftentimes in poor neighborhoods, we're talking about, um, you know, 
uh, sort of problems with um, plumbing and um, cleanliness and crowdedness that would foster things like cholera outbreaks. Um, a lot of the people in our story, uh, when we dug into their families, they'd lost a lot of people um, to things like epidemics. Um, and so we know in these kinds of quarters how fast those can spread. Again, you're listening to Where We Live here on Connecticut Public Radio. We hear about Hartford in the 19th century through the lens of one woman's story, Ada Brown. Her murder in 1884 was the focus of a history course at University of St. Joseph, where students' research helped them understand the dynamics at play in this industrial city and what happened to this particular woman. My guests are Jennifer Cody, Associate Professor of History at University of St. Joseph, and Lily Stilson was here. She's a recent USJ graduate. She made in history. After the break, we're going to talk more about the class research and how it impacted one woman's journey to learn more about her family. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about the tragic story of Ada Brown, a young Hartford woman who was murdered in 1884. Students at the University of St. Joseph looked into her story as part of a course to understand the history of an American city, our state capital. What factors led to her murder and the outcomes for her, the perpetrator, and her family? Joining us now is a descendant of Ada Brown. Eileen Newman lives in Boston. Eileen, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you were also looking into the story of what happened to Ada, but from a completely different angle. Tell us about your journey. I think it was almost the same as um, Jen's, except that Jen was Googling woman murdered and got Ada, and I was Googling Ada and got woman murdered. So tell us about who Ada Brown was to you. She's my second great-grandmother. Um, and I had been doing some research on my father's side of the family, trying, and I didn't have a lot of information, um, trying to get uh, a little bit further back. And I was actually looking for um, info about Lena. And the only thing that I knew about her was where she was buried. And that was at Zion Hill Cemetery in Hartford. So I went um, up there looking for her grave 
and she was buried actually with her parents. So there was a gravestone for both Ada and her husband. Um, and I got a lot of information about him. He had been in the Civil War and also had a very tragic story. He had been um, he had been a POW at Andersonville and survived that. But you know, clearly when he came back, his his health was not good. Um, and I honestly just Googled her on a whim. Um, I think one of the sad things about um, women in history is that they're really not part of the record. So I wasn't, I was just, I was looking to see if I could find an obituary for her and um, really wasn't expecting to find anything. And all of the, uh, the coverage in the current came up and it, it was shocking. You mentioned Lena. Lena was Ada's daughter. She would go on to have a son, William, and that's your grandfather? Yes. So you, you said that the, it was shocking to uncover these articles. So, so what was it like to read through uh, these accounts of Ada Brown? Um, you know, not having any background in it, it was just, it, I think shocking is the right word for it. And, um, you know, and also it's, amazing how connected you become to people you didn't even know existed mm -hmm. and who, you know, um, have been dead for like, you know, a hundred plus years, but you start to become very protective of them. And, you know, reading, reading the coverage, it was, um, it's upsetting uh, the words that are used to describe her and really the lack of empathy for the situation that she was in. Um, you know, she, uh, her husband died and left her with really no prospects. It's not like she could go out and find a job. Um, it's not like he had a lot to leave her. They, they lived in uh, abject poverty. It was, it's just a really sad story. And she was just forced into horrible circumstances. Along with Eileen on Zoom is Jennifer Cody. Again, she's Associate Professor of History at University of St. Joseph. Uh, Eileen mentioned um, a little bit about Ada's husband. And what did your class discover about him? So one of the things that I think I should be upfront about is that I, I do genealogy on the side and that Eileen and I spent a lot of time on William Brown, who is the husband. Um, and so oftentimes I give the students like little bits you know, to get them started. Um, so William had been a painter by trade um, and he's older than Ada is. Ada is born in the 1850s. So by the time that he was back from war, she was only 10 or 11. Um, and uh, he, he seemed to be a, a reputable person in the neighborhood. We can find um, little references here and there to positions that he ran for. And I'm trying to think if it was like a, a painting organization that he was part of, th these sorts of things. Um, and uh, right, then he gets tuberculosis and, and it kills him. But he'd already had in his earlier life, he'd had two wives prior to Ada. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's, there's not much to learn about them. And we have spent a lot of time trying. Um, his, his wife prior to Ada was a woman named Elena Schock, and we can find them in the census. Uh, he was living with her family as a boarder, and it would have seemed like a relationship came from there. Um, but we don't have clean records on when she died. Um, 
And so Eileen and I have speculated about how it is that they came to name, Ada and, and William came to name their daughter after um, that woman. Um, so whether she was a, a family friend, you know, or at, at some point, right, Ada must have known William and Elena as a couple. Um, but we don't know how that came to be. Um, his other wife, which we only know exists from the marriage records for him and Ada, which are in Hartford City Hall, uh, we can't find any record for. Um, and we searched Connecticut records, we searched Massachusetts records, and we, we couldn't come up with much of anything. Um, we know his mother's name was Susan, and that's about all we know. Um, with a name like William Brown, it's, it's, such, it's like John Smith. It's a really common name. And so it becomes, becomes rather extremely difficult to tease out the details that might be his alone. Um, so that that's kind of the framework. I think Eileen's point about his time at Andersonville, that's the part that I find the most interesting. Um, but it's, it's you know, 15 years, 10 years at least, um, that we can assume before he got to even know Ada. Eileen, as you're doing this research and then you find out all of this information about Ada Brown, what was your family's reaction to these details? <laughs> You know, I think they were really surprised. Um, unfortunately, my, my dad had already passed away by the time I um, discovered this, but his three brothers were still around. And I think all of them were really surprised. They didn't know a lot about um, their family. Their their father had left them when they were all pretty young. Um, after World War II, he just abandoned his family. And so they didn't have a lot. They did know their grandmother um, and she was not forthcoming with information about their family, which, you know, when I told them this, they're like, okay, that totally makes sense now. Um, I get why anytime we asked her any kind of questions, she would change the subject. I think there must have been a lot of shame for her um, in, uh, in the details of her mother's life and death. So tell me how you discovered that Jennifer was and had this course pegged to your second grandmother's uh, life and, and her death? Google. I mean, Google is like <laughs> your best friend, right? When you're trying to do all of this research. More Google. Uh, you know, I just, I sit, I Google all the time and just things pop up and uh, the students from, it wasn't this particular class. Um, Jen had done this class uh, probably about four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. And I found the class blog. And at first I didn't realize that it was part of a, a class. I mean, it took me a little while to figure out. But when I did, I reached out to her. And, you know, it's been it's been really great because we come at this from different angles. Like I'm really interested in learning about Ada Brown and um, having the context that her class is interested in and published in the blog has been immensely helpful to me in kind of piecing together um, what her life was like, um, how she got to where she was, and what happened. I'm looking at the blog right now, The Murder of Ada Brown. We'll tweet out a link uh, at where we live. But it is interesting uh, to be able to learn more about individuals and to think about all of the different things and factors in their lives, uh, the context of what's happening. And when you hear, when you learn about William and you learn about Ada and you even learn about the men that she was involved in, uh, one that was uh, convicted of her murder, all of the trauma to unpack there as well, Eileen. Yeah, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time looking into everyone involved. And I think that 
that's the thing about this kind of work. The more you understand the person, the more empathy you have for them. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm really grateful to Jen and her students for, because I think that the understanding that they've brought to her life has really restored a lot of her dignity. And, you know, I've, I've also done that work on both Gregory and Harrison and, you know, the stories of their lives are horrible as well. I mean, mm -hmm. just Harrison had, I don't know, four or five wives who had all died um, prior to his being with Ada, um, six or seven children that had died. And it's just that kind of loss. You just can't, you can't fathom. And I think it was a sad fact of just the conditions under which they lived. Jennifer, can you talk more about that, how your class looked at this intergenerational trauma? Uh, so my students spend a lot of time thinking about the big themes, right? So they work on things like gender and class and geography. And one of the things that they began to unpack really early, um, one group is specifically they're tasked with figuring out who the people are. And they get um, they get a genealogy account um, at the the major genealogy site there, and they get a newspaper's account and they begin to dig. Um, and so they begin to piece together that what they're seeing inside these individual lives is reflective of, indicative of these bigger currents that are creating the late 19th century, right? So you can't have, for example, um, these children who, who Martin Harrison's children, um, uh, they, one of them dies of something that's called putrid sore throat, which is this highly contagious form of, uh, my understanding from Googling is, is a, it's like a form of strep that can kill them. Um, there were a number of kids who died of colic uh, in his family. And I want to say, because Ada Brown and William Brown have a couple of children who don't survive. And I want to say I found a death record that said one of them died of colic as well. And this sort of stuff that we consider to be, to some degree, part of ordinary childhood is, is menacing. Um, and so students begin to unpack, well, what does that look like in this world? You know, and what does that do to people? And one of the, the struggles that students have, and I think it's a conversation that Eileen and I have had a number of times, which is like, there are limits to what we can know. So we can extrapolate and we can think about the impact of trauma, but we'll never know specifically if that's the thing that makes a person crack, right? If um, so Martin Harrison is kind of a wild story. He had, yeah, four wives, all of whom were named either um, Josephine or I think Elizabeth. Um, yes. <laughs> and one of them commits suicide. Um, one of them dies of delirium tremens. Um, and we couldn't find the other two. Um, he had I think, three daughters who had died one summer after another. Um, is that what made what him, what he became, or was he already in that way before? Um, we don't know. One of the things that the students and I spend a lot of time talking about is alcohol. Um, so we know that people in the 19th century drank on, on a whole a lot more than people in, in our world do in part because the water wasn't great in some of these neighborhoods, um, in part because the saloon was a place in which men sort of got some space, like a social space that they weren't getting in other places. 
um, we know that it is highly gendered. Um, we don't know to what extent it becomes a factor in creating trauma or coping with trauma or prolonging the impacts of trauma. We just don't know. Um, so the students and I spent some time talking about how one of the Josephines, the one who died of delirium tremens, okay, so that tells us a little something about her, but does that tell us something about him? Like, did, did they drink together or was that just her? Um, we know that there was alcohol in Ada Brown's apartment that night. We know that they stopped to have a drink before the fight breaks out. Um, we don't know if that was something they did all the time. We don't know if that was an isolated thing, right? Um, and so we begin to ask questions about how people's trauma impacts the other choices that they end up making, but also just shapes your ability to even make those choices. Um, and that becomes this really complex discussion. And there are lots of parallels to it that we can have about our world, right? And the way that we cope with trauma and devastation and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could also talk about how people like Ada and Martin and Gregory reviewed people living in poverty. Was that seen as a moral failing? It oftentimes was. So my own research gets into this to some degree because I look at the early history of social welfare work in America. Um, and there is this tension by the 1880s where people of, of means, right, wealthier folks, um, oftentimes think of themselves as being benevolent and helpful, but they're making a lot of judgments while they do it. Um, and so in some of the details about Ada Brown's case um, that I was reading in the, I think the New Haven Courier Journal, something like that, um, was talking about how this very wonderful wealthy woman paid for Ada Brown's headstone, how wonderful. And that's the focus of the story as opposed to like this horrible thing that happened. Um, but I think the horrible thing that happened was evidence of what people thought they already knew. Do you know what I mean? That is to say that uh, people make assumptions about what people who lived in poverty were like. Um, they oftentimes do see it as a moral failure. There is some work in the 1880s um, where people are beginning to say, you know, maybe there are social causes. Maybe we should look at why poverty exists rather than blaming people for their impoverished state. Um, but that's that's a slow journey to get people to really begin to make, to begin to see that there are systemic problems. Eileen, did you want to add to that as you're learning again more about your descendant, Ada Brown, and the life that she lived, what it was like to live in the tenement housing, to deal with those public health issues? And so many people seem to have untimely deaths back then. Yeah, I think, you know, she, I'm not really sure what happened to her earlier in her life. Um, her family was relatively well off. Um, and it looks like her mother died when she was five. And that, you know, based on, on my research, that seems to be the fracture point. Um, and, uh, you know, I only have census records to look at. So every 10 years, I have like a, a, a point of fact that I can extrapolate from. But it seems as though her father distributed the kids to a bunch of different places. Um, Ada was living with her grandparents. She had a sister who was um, living with a family. I think she was 12 and she was sort of a domestic servant in their house. And the father remarried um, a couple more times, but never reassembled the family. So I see that as sort of like the fracture point for her. And I'm not exactly sure you know, how she ended up in Hartford, but she ended up there alone and without a family. And I think some of the things that um, Jen and I have been able to uncover, you know, um, afterward are really indicative of how her family viewed her. 
you know, there's coverage in the current that says that they um, sent telegrams to her family and no one responded. And there was something where, you know, the, the journalism is a little sloppy sometimes. So there was a report in the Winstead paper, which is where she was from originally, that um, attributed her parentage to an uncle, not to her real father. And two of the cousins took real umbrage to that and wrote a letter to the editor. And there was, you know, really nothing about her, but they wanted the record corrected. And then even later in life, her... Um, her father's third wife in her obituary, which was written by a stepsister, she made a point of pointing out that um, Ada's father had had no children and that the children that this woman had were all descended from her and another man, not Ada's father. And I'm just like, you know, that kind of um, just disdain for someone. And I think it's especially hurtful to realize that um you know, whatever choices Ada made or how she got there, uh, Lena didn't make those choices. And here's a little six-year-old girl who just saw her her mother have her throat slit, and now she's in an orphanage. Like, no one in her family is thinking about, hey, we got to go get her. Um, she might need us. And I think that, to me, is like one of the really the most heartbreaking things in this whole story. You're listening to Where We Live as we learn more about the story of Ada Brown. She was a young Hartford woman murdered in 1884. Uh, her story was the focus of a history course at the University of St. Joseph. You just heard Eileen Newman, descendant of Ada Brown, here on the show. Jennifer Cody is here as well, who's the Associate Professor of History at University of St. Joseph. We'll continue talking after the break. What stories have you learned about your family through genealogy? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our lives are a lot different than Americans who lived in the 19th century, but certain societal norms still crop up today, like judging women by their appearances and the relationships they hold. That's what happened to Ada Brown, who was a widowed mother and a murder victim killed by a man who she had once had a relationship with. The press back then in 1884 attacked Ada's reputation. According to research by University of St. Joseph's history class, the current's reporting gloried in the, quote, depraved status of the murder victim, Ada Brown, whom they branded from the start as a fallen woman. It was a standard not held up to men. We've been learning about Ada's story and why it was the focus of a history course at University of St. Joseph. Uh, with us is Eileen Newman, who's a descendant of Ada Brown, and Jennifer Cody, who was a professor of that history course at University of St. Joseph. I wanted to go back to Lily Stilson, who was a student in that class, a recent graduate. Uh, Lily, you haven't met Eileen uh, before uh, being on the show with her, but when Jennifer told you and your classmates about her, this connection with the descendant of Ada Brown, how did she respond? It was really great to hear that we had some connection to this story because, you know, we had we had formed as much of a connection as you can without knowing the person. Um, and so in history, it's hard to really know who you're learning about 
because they are so far removed from your own life. And so learning that Eileen had reached out to us um, and had had offered to talk to our class or make offer some information was just great because we didn't know Ada Brown personally, but we have someone who has a direct connection to her. Um, and so that made it the story more real to us and made us realize that this isn't someone far removed from our own lives. We have someone who knew her or knew, knows about her. Eileen, we've talked about how your great-great-grandmother was portrayed, but when you see all the research that's been done and the fact that the class has taken such time to learn about Ada, uh, how does that make you feel now? You know, I'm just, I'm, again, just really grateful that they've done it. I think that the context that they've put around this story helps people to understand sort of, you know, who she was and why she was what she was and why she made the choices that she did. And, you know, as somebody who's her descendant, like I'm incredibly grateful for what she did to survive and what she did to allow um, my great grandmother to survive. When we think about giving people dignity, do you feel that that Ada Brown has been given this, this, this focus on her today, Eileen? I do. I think that, you know, the, the more we understand why people make these kinds of choices or the conditions that drive them to make those choices, the better we can um, understand who they are. And I think it does restore dignity to her. Um, you know, that's one of the things that's just the, the most difficult is reading the coverage and hearing how she was portrayed and the things that were said about her. And, and then seeing how um, you know, the other person in this for me, too, is like my second great grandfather, right, her husband. And, you know, he really made a lot of the same choices that she did. And in all of the coverage, it's like, oh, he was such a nice guy. And, you know, he was a veteran from the Civil War and everybody really liked him. And then they go on to describe just how awful she is. And I think, you know, pointing out those kind of disparities and the societal um, norms that made them happen uh, allows us to see that she was probably just as nice a person as he was. And it's just the lens through which we've been forced to see her. Mm. Uh, Jennifer, uh, you're the history professor here. Uh, just the other week, we talked about the Witness Stones project where students and community members are creating remembrances for enslaved men and women who once lived in our state. Can you talk more about this approach to history again, this idea of helping bring dignity to people who've been long forgotten? You know, what's interesting is I hadn't thought about it in those terms when I originally planned the course. Um, the first time I taught it was 2016. And, uh, you know, frankly, I was going after a story that I knew would engage the students and get them rolling. Um, and it didn't occur to me until we were sort of trucking along um, midway through the semester that what we were doing and telling the story was, in fact, restoring a story. Um, I just I hadn't put those pieces together initially. And so I think one of the things that's useful about teaching history with a focus on particular individuals is, is not just that it, it motivates students to get interested, but that you wind up creating connections to the past in which you realize that the lenses through which you view them are constructions, right? So that students who are looking at Ada Brown, for example, if all they had was the newspaper articles, they might be like, oh, that 
the poor woman, something terrible happened to her, but she doesn't seem very good. Um, and so forcing people to unpack the language and the, the rhetoric and the assumptions that we have around people, um, I think it's a great way to learn. Um, and it's also a great way of, of creating space for people for whom the world didn't create a whole lot of space in their own lifetimes. Lily, uh, who is with us, and she was a student uh, in your class, Lily Stilson, I mentioned your recent graduate. You majored in history. I'm wondering if you can give me some thoughts about um, how this course impacted your thinking when you look at history. And so often in our country, the emphasis being on uh, remembering uh, famous uh, white men whose names are on buildings or statues in communities and how this is starting uh, to be looked at again is maybe this is not the right approach as we think about people in our past. Yeah, I think this course was really helpful in developing that deeper um, research base for me um, because, you know, we are taught in um, high school, middle school, elementary school that here's the information, here's the big players in history who, like you said, are mostly white men. Um, and so to have a course like this where we get to look at someone whose story wasn't told for so long really makes a point of how much further we have to look into these historical figures that we often revere. Um, and I think it's important to not only look into them with the lens of, I know this person is important to history, but have an open mind where they are important to history or they may have done something that formed history, but it might not have always been done with the best intentions or they may not have the best past. And it's okay to recognize that. And it's okay to say we have, they might not be the greatest person to revere. This has been a fascinating hour. So many of us are interested in our genealogy. Eileen, you've learned a lot about uh, your descendants. And I'm wondering, are there still some mysteries about Ada's story that you're looking to uncover? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I talked to Jen a lot via email about all of the things that we still don't know. Um, you know, I'm particularly interested in figuring out what happened to her mother. Um, because I do think that that was sort of the starting point. Um, I do a lot of work around uh, both Harrison and Gregory, trying to understand who they were. Um, I actually spent some time also on figuring out like who was on the jury, just to sort of figure out how they approached this and what they brought to that. And that's been fascinating as well. I go down a lot of rabbit holes. Um, <laughs> just looking for anything that sort of gives some context to this. I think, you know, for me, um, I started doing this work mainly because my grandfather had left. I think, did we lose Eileen? I think we might have lost Eileen. Oh, uh, but I, I wanted to go back to Jennifer Cody. Again, you're the Associate Professor of History at University of St. Joseph. This is a wonderful blog that your students uh, have uh, created. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, where does your history course go from here? Is this something that you repeat each year? So this course I've only taught twice in the last five years. And so doing that means that everyone who is in the first rotation, they're not there for the second rotation. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And after uh, the 2016 blog stood for a long time. And then when I was planning on teaching this again, I, I 
tore it down. I, I mean, I saved it, but I didn't want the current students to be able to see it. So I don't know if I'll, I'll repeat this one anytime soon or if I'll recenter it with somebody else, um, because at this point, um, if students Google, they'll find they'll find a lot of information. Um, and, and part of why I chose the story Alveda Brown was because there isn't a lot of information. Um, there isn't a whole lot of scholarly research, even on Hartford history, uh, compared to, say, a New York um, or a Boston. So, so yeah, I think I, I may end up pulling American cities in a bit of a, a different direction, um, uh, if only because there are other folks who, who need that, that bit of dignity as well. I think uh, Eileen is back with us. Eileen, can you hear me? Yes, I'm sorry. No problem. Uh, before we run out of time, we just have a couple of minutes. You did mention something. You said that you go down a lot of rabbit holes. You looked into the jury. What was one of the interesting facts that you uncovered of, of someone who was on that jury? Um, there was a couple of things. Um, there, most of the people that were on it were farmers, but there was one man who um, ended up becoming a deputy commissioner of insurance. And then there was also um, Mark Twain's private secretary, um, and quote unquote, best friend, uh, according to his own obituary. So I thought that was just really interesting and a, and a um, cool piece of Hartford history. That is really interesting. And just to kind of put a bow on this uh, very interesting story, Jennifer, if you could tell us briefly, it was Martin Van Buren Harrison uh, who was sent to prison for on a manslaughter charge uh, yeah. because of what happened with Ada. Yep, exactly. Um, they, they initially try for a murder charge. Um, and the students and I spend a lot of time trying to figure out why it is they end up with manslaughter, but they, they end up with manslaughter. Eileen and I were talking yesterday and she thought she'd read somewhere that basically the lawyer didn't think he could get a murder charge um, because there was too much gray area. He and Gregory were tried together. Um, so they end up with manslaughter. Well, thank you so much for talking us through your very interesting history course, University of St. Joseph, Jennifer Cody, Associate Professor of History there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having us on. We really appreciate it. Also, Lily Stilson, who majored in history, a recent grad of USJ. She was in Jennifer's class. Lily, thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to be on. And also, it was a pleasure to hear from Eileen Newman, who lives in Boston. She's a descendant of Ada Brown. Eileen, thank you for coming on to share your family story with us. Oh, thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live on your favorite broadcast app. And tomorrow, we're going to be hearing from Republican State Senator Paul Formica as the legislature nears an end.